0: Good evening good afternoon or good night however and whenever it is you may be listening thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the take it easy podcast happy monday everybody it is so great To be back with you here today and for the second week in a row we are testing out a new little bit here that I am loving or at least I loved doing it last week so we want to try it out again and maybe make this a recurring episode on Mondays to go along with our soon to be NFL previews because ladies and gentlemen it's NFL kickoff week. We're three days away from the start of the NFL season and I am Ready, so pumped right now, Um, so we're going to see if memes of the weekend works out, this is our new segment, if you want to laugh at Nebraska and the New York Mets, you can check that out on last week's podcast, and the topics we won't get to on today's show, like laughing at the University of Miami, or laughing at the Clemson Tigers for putting up three points, and shout out to our boys over at the Slump Buster Follow them on YouTube, by the way. I uh, do some recurring content over there. Um, For the stat that the last name of the Clemson quarterback, DJ Oyungalale has more syllables than Clemson scored points in that game. I could also take it one step further and say that there were more syllables than offensive points scored in that game. There are six syllables in Oyungalale. Three offensive points scored for Clemson, six total offensive points scored in the game, which is my second favorite stat of the weekend, only behind the fact that Washington paid $675,000 for the University of Montana to beat them and derail their program. We will actually have more on that. Coming up later on, on the memes of the weekend. So, we're going to laugh at a bunch of different teams here and stories from the weekend. And hopefully just have some entertainment here. Because what's the point of talking serious stuff right now? Actually, there is one thing I do want to talk about seriously that will come up here as we laugh at just the ridiculousness of the event. And you know what? Let's start right there now that I think about it. Our first topic for memes of the weekend and my favorite is Notre Dame versus Florida State because that entire experience was just one gigantic thrill ride of laughter and smiles and joy as I come to you wearing my 2017 UCF Undefeated National Champions t-shirt that I pulled out of the closet to wear In the spirit of Mackenzie Milton's magical comeback for the Florida State Seminoles, which this story is going to require a lot of explanation because like Bishop Sycamore last week, this was just the unbelievable how is this how is any of this happening in the sequence that it's happening type of game that went down on Sunday night between Notre Dame and Florida State, which I didn't think would be that interesting. And lo and behold, it was like the most interesting college football game in like 24 hours because the Penn State-Wisconsin game was super interesting and then Alabama-Miami was funny and then Georgia and Clemson was a gigantic game. But still, it was probably the most fun I've had watching college football since maybe the playoff last year. I know all three games were blowouts, but... I think probably since either the playoff or that double overtime Notre Dame win over Clemson. So Notre Dame is the number nine ranked team in the country. You guys know Notre Dame, famous for being an above-average college football program, team that has a giant national fan base of old people and people who tribalistically pass down that fandom to their children and grandchildren. Notre Dame, of course, plays a national TV schedule on NBC and Gets to be independent because it sticks with the tradition of Notre Dame football, which has won, I believe, what was it, eleven national championships, nine of them before 1970. So, they can hold on to that. They also have Rudy. You guys know Notre Dame. So Notre Dame last year was the number three team in the country, and after 277 games of Ian Book starting at quarterback for Notre Dame, they had a like retooling phase at Notre Dame. They lose Liam Eikenberg to the draft, they lose their starting tight end to the draft, they've lost some running backs over the past couple years, including Josh Adams, who I think is now on the Jets, but also is a good who-he-play-for name to save for next year. So Notre Dame ends up playing Florida State, and Florida State has just been a perpetual laughingstock across the last half Decade, and they're ironically like they're the one team where you can point to a moment, a singular moment where it all fell apart for Florida State football, and that begins with 2016. Jimbo Fisher is about to leave the program to go coach at Texas A and M, and so Florida State is playing as the number three team in the country against a number 11-ranked Louisville team. And this Louisville team, this is, again, this 2016 Florida State team is coming off of a game earlier in the season where their quarterback got hurt. And they ended up finishing the season. So their quarterback gets hurt in a game where they just get pummeled pummeled by Alabama a year ago and so they're kind of transitioning they're like a 10 win team but they're usually second in the country they were ranked number two at the time playing number 11 Louisville it was a college game day game it was early in the season and in that game, I remember walking outside to go play football in the morning. I was probably in the 10th grade, I want to say, 9th or 10th grade, 2016, graduated in 2019, so this would have been 10th grade. I'm in the 10th grade, I've just watched college game day, it's the only time that the 9 o'clock game was also the primetime game because Kirk Herbstreet had to ride in a, in a golf cart to go from the game day set up to the booth to call the game. It was a fun experience to watch on TV. And I came back in from playing outside about 40 minutes later, and it was 21-0 Louisville. Louisville would go on to win that game 63-20, to and it was the coming-out party for Lamar Jackson. And that was the year Lamar Jackson would win the Heisman. He was, again, Louisville wasn't that highly ranked. They get up at one point to number four five in the country or number four in the country and lose on a last second play to Clemson and Deshaun Watson, which would precede a lot of what we're seeing in the NFL now between Watson and Lamar Jackson. But that was the coming out party and that was the unofficial official end of Florida State football dominance. They had won a championship in 2013. They'd played in the Orange Bowl just after that. And that was the end of Florida State football was that game where they just got pummeled by Louisville while ranked number two in the country. They fell out of the top 10. They would not get back to being ranked in the top 10 ever again after that game. After that loss, Florida state has never been back to the top 10 in all of college football. They would actually play in the peach bowl that year and lose. And then they would uh, play in the orange bowl, win that. And then they would fall apart Jimbo would leave to go coach Texas A&M. They transitioned to Willie Taggart, who gets fired after one of the worst stretches of Florida State football of all time, period. Like, you can go back to, like, 1970s was the last time Florida State was that bad at football. And so Willie Taggart gets fired, basically ran out of town and told never to come back at Florida State. They hired this guy named Mike Norville to try and turn around a team that's basically worse than Syracuse now. And they've had back-to-back losing seasons. Mike Norville comes in, and in his first month, well actually his first six months on the job at Florida State, he ends up having a controversy because he tells players that he is going to back them up a hundred percent in the black lives matter protest, which then has senior leadership call him out for going back on his word and being just generally dishonest with the older players and trying to move them slowly out the door. And so it looks like everything's about to fall apart. People are talking about whether Norville will get fired before he even gets to coach a game and then comes out, puts up a, stinker of a season three and six seniors start transferring they are terrible they are unranked they are finished 13th out of 15 among ACC teams so they are just putrid but they have this really cool story and we find out two really cool stories because there's an offensive lineman who transferred from Notre Dame to Florida State who uh, befriended a kid with a Rare disease, they wouldn't say what the rare disease was on the broadcast, but to get him to come to the game between Notre Dame and Florida State, they raised $51,000, and counting now, because the story's going viral. And uh, if you look up Mike Golick Jr. on Twitter, you can find the link if anyone wanted to donate to this cause of helping medical bills for a rare disease and kid who permanently in a wheelchair And requires a tube for breathing and things of those sorts. So uh, it's a good cause to donate to. They raised $51,000 before the game started. Now that it's a national story, I assume that number is going to skyrocket. And so that story is also in addition to Mackenzie Milton. And it took six minutes of context to get to Mackenzie Milton, which is going to require even more context. And unfortunately, even though this is memes of the weekend, it is going to be context that is less funny than Florida State getting absolutely pummeled, because pummeled is the kindest word I can use on the air to describe what happened to them against Louisville, and still be really, really funny. But this is not as funny. So Mackenzie Milton was the reason I was wearing my 2017 UCF National Champion t-shirt, because Mackenzie Milton was the starting quarterback of that 2017 UCF National Championship team. He won 23 straight starts as quarterback and suffered the most gruesome injury ever on a football field or, I would say, on a national stage of athletic competition. Like, worse than Alex Smith, worse than Joe Theismann, worse than Bo Jackson, he had a ruptured artery double compound fracture and dislocation of his leg bones and tore up every ligament in his knee. If UCF had been playing at Eastern Carolina instead of at Orlando during the week that he got injured, there was a good chance that they would have had to amputate his leg on the way to the hospital because it had just been so mangled. And so Mackenzie Milton suffers a horrific injury and the doctors who performed the procedures on him said that they'd never seen anything like it in 22 years as a surgeon never seen anything like what happened to Mackenzie Milton which is the darker layers of football that we can talk about in the rah-rah and the feel-good that's going to come up on the back end that we can laugh at but this is the serious part of the realities of watching football and I've been talking about this for years Football is our version of modern gladiators. Unfortunately, we, ha- we don't have to watch them die in the arenas because they slowly die painful deaths after their playing careers are done, after the cameras are mostly turned off. We get to see the gruesome deaths and derailments of these gladiator athletes who entertain us by bludgeoning each other. And it's the most popular sport in America, and it d- generates billions of dollars of revenue. And the sport is absolutely violent and crazy, even as they've changed the rules over the years. There are totally long-lasting effects that we now know exist and often choose that those long-lasting effects and future deaths and long-term health ramifications of the gladiator players that we're watching do not deter us from stopping to watch, which is not an altogether bad issue like it's a moral conundrum and it's hard to empathize with people in those situations i am a hypocrite in these situations because i talk about this and yet traffic in these bodies to create content from the safety of my home talking about the bodies colliding and killing each other and so it's only in these rare circumstances that Mackenzie milton's injury forces all of us who are watching it to kind of sit back and rethink What it is that we're watching. And I can only remember four times where something of that sort related to that. It was Alex Smith. It was Dak Prescott. It was Kevin Durant tearing his Achilles in the NBA Finals. And it was Mackenzie Milton. Those were the times that I really found myself sitting back, reflecting on the sport that we have, and in the case of Kevin Durant, it was a different case because everyone had vilified him for years over his Warriors decision, and it took him tearing his Achilles and losing that greatest basketball talent that we've ever seen, or at least of a generation, which by the way, side note, shout out to the Ant-Man Anthony Edwards for saying Kevin Durant is better than LeBron James because it's time that we start this conversation about just the possibility that what comes recently can be better than what existed in the past. We talk about this with Tupac syndrome all the time, is that Tupac is great, Biggie is great, and they've got that legendary status because of their early deaths. But at some point, there's got to be a new Biggie. There's got to be a new Tupac. There's got to be something that's better. As I say that after listening to about half of Certified Lover Boy by our generation's iconic and generation-defining artist, Drake. So... With that being said, back to the Mackenzie Milton situation, and it's hard to not get sidetracked and laugh at this. I mean, the segment is memes of the weekend, but in the case of Mackenzie Milton, it's one of those moments that makes you sit back and think about what it is exactly that we're watching. The gladiator sport rarely gets to be shown this painfully clearly in front of everyone, where his leg is literally just shattered into a dozen pieces on the field Every ligament is torn up, and we are forced to sit there and genuflect about what it is that we has happened, especially since I had adopted that UCF team as the savior, great story in college football, underdogs in sports who declared their own national champion and deserved it with 100% certainty, and I was going to ride the UCF bandwagon all the way through and through, and to see it happen to that quarterback of that team was probably the one that could have possibly resonated the most with me at a time where we weren't doing podcasts like Mackenzie Milton got injured eight months before we even started a podcast and we're on year three so Mackenzie Milton has these gigantic surgeries and is a medical nothing short of a medical miracle which we see a lot of those Now, Because medical technology is improving and we have processes for improving this. But he again, as the doctor said, who performed the surgery 22 years had never seen a case like what happened to Milton. And so he spends two and a half years rehabbing the leg to full strength. And there were just talks about like it would be difficult for him to walk without pain for the rest of his life. Because of the massive reconstructions that he went through. And this wasn't even like a sports rehab PT. This is like people who are um, coming back from war. That's the levels of physical therapy that Mackenzie Milton had to go through. Across two and a half years. Still had one year of eligibility. And he transferred to Florida State. To compete for the starting job with the Seminoles. Under new coach Mike Norville. And he ends up being the backup. To start the season. Tonight is the first game. Notre Dame is up 38-20. to Rolling through the game. But I just kept watching. Just because of the slim possibility. That Florida State could make a comeback. And lo and behold. Florida State scores a touchdown. Gets a two point conversion. With not Mackenzie Milton. This is quarterback. Jake. Oh, sorry not Jake. Uh, Jordan Travis. Coming in for Florida State. Or he's the starter for Florida State. And through three interceptions, And Notre Dame was whooping up on him. But they start making this slow comeback. And then with just over eight minutes left to go, Travis's headgear gets knocked off. I don't know why I said headgear. It's a helmet. But on the broadcast, Joe Tessitore called it headgear getting knocked off. And so in comes Mackenzie Milton. And it's a major round of applause. And the fact he's playing made everyone feel like what happened when Alex Smith came back for the first time. And then Alex Smith got backpacked by Aaron Donald on a sack. And we were all worried that his leg was going to get snapped. And then Alex Smith proceeded to play 10 weeks of the worst football I've ever seen from a starting quarterback. And I'm sorry. It's a great story. It was 10 weeks of the worst football I've ever seen played by a quarterback. And so Mackenzie Milton After two and a half years of being out, goes five for five for 39 yards, leads a touchdown drive for Florida State, gets the ball back off a punt, leads them down the field with 40 seconds to go, and they kick the game-tying field goal to lead an 18-point fourth-quarter comeback against a number 10 team that just played in the college football playoff. And so they go to overtime, I'm wearing my jersey, I'm hoping to lord or whatever deity is out there because I'm not spiritual, but watching what happened with Mackenzie Milton is going to make me believe that spirituality still exists somewhere in the universe. Mackenzie Milton ends up coming out and fumbling the football on third down to lose 13 yards and set up a 50-yard field goal for the Florida State kicker. And he made the kick, except for the fact that there was a timeout called to ice the kicker before. Except it wasn't an icing of the kicker, because the timeout was called by none other than Mike Norville and the Florida State bench after making the game-tying 50-yard field goal because they wanted to challenge that it was actually an incompletion and not a fumble by Mackenzie Milton. And they win said challenge, so they move the kick up, 13 yards, 37-yarder, except now your kicker's been sitting on the sidelines for six minutes. Comes back out, 37-yard kick after just making the 50-yarder. Shank it to the left, iced your own kicker. Notre Dame gets the ball in the second half of overtime, has a 41-yard field goal, and in the back of your mind, you're thinking powers of Mackenzie Milton and whatever Disney movie they're going to make after that story, even though it's really a story of heartache and the realities of football that we choose to ignore. Somehow they're going to pull it out. Somehow Florida State is not going to Florida State this thing up. Somehow we're just going to have an amazing story of an amazing comeback and an amazing spirit of a young man leading his team back from the brink. And Notre Dame made the kick. And not even the magical powers of Mackenzie Milton could stop Florida State from being an absolute meme. And they get to be the number one meme of the weekend. On a weekend where their state counterparts Miami got absolutely pummeled by Alabama, pulled out the turnover chain down 27-0 and had to put it back after a call was overturned and never got to use the turnover chain the rest of the game. On a weekend where, as I've mentioned eight times in the previous 24 hours, Washington football, not the the NFL one, the one up in the Pacific Northwest, paid $675,000 for the University of Montana to derail their entire program. And on a weekend where Clemson scored three points... And on a weekend where, in the exact same frickin' game, Notre Dame blew an 18-point fourth-quarter lead to those terrible Florida State Seminoles, somehow Florida State gets to be the ultimate meme of the weekend. Because no amount of feel-good and Mackenzie Milton magic could stop Florida State from being Florida State. Continuing here on Memes of the Weekend, we get to laugh at the greatest meme of them all Kansas football. Because even when Kansas football wins, they get to be losers. So, for those who don't know about the magical story of Kansas football, one, have you been living under a rock for the last 12 years? Two, You must not be a uh, gigantic fan of this podcast, because if you've listened to Take It Easy, we have done, I want to say, four to five full podcasts just about Kansas football. Because Kansas football, in 2008, or I'm sorry, 2007, won the Orange Bowl, with Mark Mangino, who there's an amazing photo out on the internet of him being rounder than the Orange Bowl mascot. It's actually the, uh, the profile picture for the Levitard show of Mark Mangino being fatter than the Orange Bowl mascot. And Mark Mangino won an Orange Bowl at Kansas. And then two years later started the season 5-0 and and was fired because of being cruel to his players they would go on to lose the final seven games of 2009, go 1 and 7 in the conference in 2010, finish last place in their division, 2011, 2 and 10, 0 and 9 in the division, 10th out of 10, 2012, 10th out of 10, 2013, 10th out of 10, although they would go 1 and 8 in conference play. 2014, 1 and 8 9th place out of 10 because they were ahead of the winless Iowa State team. 2015, they'd go 0-12, 0-9 in the conference, 10th place. 2016, 1-8, 10th place. 2017, 0-9, 10th place. 2018, 1-8, 10th place. Les Miles takes over, 1-8, 10th place. 2020, 0-8, 10th place. They would finish the season 0-9. And so coming into this season, Kansas football, which has been the worst thing in all of sports, you could take basketball, baseball, hockey, soccer, whatever it is, Kansas football is the worst thing in sports. So Kansas has not won a game since October of 2019, almost two years ago. Their worst or their best game last year technically was against Texas Tech where they would only lose by three points their next worst margin of defeat was 21 points against West Virginia. So they were terrible last year. Just absolutely putrid. They played at home against Coastal Carolina. Lost by three touchdowns. Lost some games by 40. And Les Miles would get fired late late into the offseason last year because of some uh, creepy sexual harassment going down with what happened at LSU which was basically the program selling their soul and looking the other way around sexual assault in order to win football games and so Les Miles ends up getting fired and Kansas has to hire a new football coach whose name I do not know uh, and probably this person just didn't have any other options uh, because this is football hell to try and turn around Kansas football the guy's name is Lance Leopold, who was the coach at Buffalo. Apparently, um, that is really unfortunate for Lance Leopold. But uh, Kansas has a new football coach, and so Kansas plays their first game against South Dakota, a team who last year went one and three. In the Missouri Valley Football Conference, so not only do we have an FCS team, which is basically like Division 1B in college football, we have an average team in Division 1B. They're like five and seven in their last full season and they went one and three last year. So this is an average team in the FCS. And by the way, Kansas football doesn't draw large attendances, their stadium is actually quite small relative, uh, No, you're going to lose games a lot, and uh, Kansas football holds roughly about what an FCS stadium would hold. Kansas football holds 50,000, but Kansas doesn't really fill that stadium very much during the Last full season that Kansas played, their home games drew such numbers as, I mean, at least for, in in a pre-COVID world, their home games drew such numbers as 31,000, 34,000 against Oklahoma. Uh, By the way, 31,000 was that last win that they had. Um, They drew... 47,000 and for their home finale they drew 22,000 fans in a 61 to 6 defeat against baylor 22,000 fans is about a los angeles chargers game in a college town which is again college sports teams draw hundreds of that or a hundred thousand people when NFL stadiums can max out, at 70,000. So Kansas has some of the lowest attendances in the sport, one of the worst teams in the sport, and they beat South Dakota, an average FCS team, by three points and storm the field after beating an average FCS team. And you know what? I'm in favor of storming the field when you beat an average FCS team. When you root for Kansas... And you don't know if it's going to be two or three years before you're going to get to storm that field again. I am all in favor of storming the field. Because the last time they won a conference game was against Texas Tech. And the last time they stormed the field was when they broke a losing streak by beating the University of Texas back in 2017. So you know what? You might as well storm the damn field. And by the way, that Texas win was actually 2016, and it was their only conference win of the season. So, you know what? Storm the damn field. Doesn't matter to me. You might as well just storm the damn field if you're Kansas, but you get to be a meme of the weekend, because you can go find the video. It's like a sad like 7,000 people storming the field at Kansas, where... You know, 100,000 people might fill up the field. 7,000 gets you to, from like 30-yard line to 30-yard line of people storming the field. It was a little sad. I will give them that. It was a little bit of a sad, little exciting party, but Kansas storms the field after beating an FCS team that over the last two seasons has a combined record of 6-10, and 10. and they didn't even win emphatically. They won by three points. 17-14, to 14, and they guarantee they will not win another game the rest of the season because Kansas football is absolutely atrocious and will continue to be atrocious and for over a decade now, the worst thing that exists in sports. Next up here on Memes of the Weekend, we get to laugh at Washington again because as I've mentioned before, the Washington Huskies paid the University of Montana $675,000 to derail their football program. And Washington might was probably now Washington was the biggest loser of the weekend, I would say. Washington gets to be the biggest meme of the weekend, but I would like to extend this meme from not just Washington to the entire Pac-12 because one of the running jokes we've had for years now is making fun of Pac-12 football. Pac-12 football has been so mediocre for so long, they don't even qualify as a as a Power Five conference anymore. I'd like to substitute the Mountain West in for the Pac-12, and I've been saying for many a years that San Diego State had the best of the of the 2010s decade. San Diego State had the best football team of any of the teams in California they were better than USC they were better than UCLA they were better than Cal they were better than Stanford they were better than any of the teams in the Mountain West San Diego State was California's best football team and basketball team for much of the or for the entire decade of the 2010s now San Diego State football is not very good anymore but They, for a decade, were the best team in California. And I would like to extend the Pac-12 all the way outside of their four terrible teams in California. I'd like to extend it out to the entire conference. The entire conference gets to be a meme of the weekend because so many teams lost to the Mountain West. Not just Washington losing to the Big Sky which I guess we could get the Big Sky involved in trying to take down the Mountain West is a great we are the uh, the Pac twelve is a great weekend for the Big Sky by the way Big Sky UC Davis beat up on Tulsa this is uh, of course we had Montana pulling off the victory it was a great weekend for the, for the Big Sky Conference so in addition to Washington's loss we had a few winners by the way so in their game where they pay a team to come lose utah took care of business usc took care of business against last year's mountain west mountain west west region champion san jose state they won pretty big and oregon survived against fresno state which we'll get to that a little more in a bit but we still had a uh, a bit of a loser situation in the pac 12 because Washington took the L to Montana, but in addition, Wazoo, Washington State, lost at home to Utah State. And look, years ago, Utah State was a really good team. They won 10 games, their coach was hired at Texas Tech, took the entire coaching staff with him and so the defensive line coach became the interim head coach he had a lot of graduate assistants that were coaching position groups and utah state actually won a bowl game with the defensive line coach as the interim coach and position grad students as position coaches utah state actually won a bowl game that year in the new mexico bowl This Utah State team is terrible. This Utah State team won two games last year in the COVID-shortened season, no doubt, but they won two games last year. They finished dead last in the Mountain West Mountain Division, and this year they opened their season against Wazoo, small little measuring stick game, and they won 26-23. Nick Rolovich is in his second year at washington state replacing mike leach and it's not going great for mr rolovich last year he was someone who basically viewed the uh, college football players uniting the we are united movement as like an attempt to unionize basically and take away some of the power and so he was not having it last year Uh, The 2020 Washington State team only got to play four games because of COVID protocols and they went one and three on the season. And Wazoo came into this year at their media day and found out that their coach was an anti-vaxxer and would be doing media away from everyone else and doing it over Zoom and going through all the protocols on campus. Which is never a great sign when the leadership within your organization and football team is an anti-vaxxer. So I don't think Nick Rolovich is really going to last at Washington State. seems like a match made in hell. And Wazoo is back to being the mediocre team that they were before Mike Leach got there. So Wazoo loses to Utah State. Cal... You guys know Cal Berkeley, that football team that had Aaron Rodgers and Jared Goff all those many years ago, some reason keeps producing NFL quarterbacks. Well, Cal took on Nevada, who they themselves have an NFL quarterback, and Nevada beat the University of California, despite the fact Nevada had to travel to Stanford during their training camp because of poor air quality. And so... Nevada beats Cal. Stanford went on the road to face K State. And K State is at least a power conference team. They're going through a rebuild at the same time. They got smacked by three touchdowns by K State over the weekend. BYU, who's getting ready to maybe join the Big 12, as UCF and Houston and them, and I think Cincinnati was the last one, petitioned to join the conference. BYU smacks up Arizona and their brand-new coach, whose name I forgot, but he came from Notre Dame. They smacked around him. And, or wait, is a quarterback's coach? No, he came from the Patriots. New coach for Notre Dame's at Vanderbilt. Our new Notre, former Notre Dame coach is at Vanderbilt. Patriots QB coach is now coaching the University of Arizona. They got smacked in their first game by BYU. Oregon State traveled to Purdue. They got smacked by Jake Plummer's son, who is creatively named Jack Plummer, which, by the way, Jack Plummer sounds like a great name for an action movie star. Jack Plummer sounds like a guy who's got 48 hours to try and save the world and also gets disavowed by his government. So Jack Plummer beats Oregon State. And those are the many losers in the conference. But the best story of the weekend, the best story of the weekend after Washington paying $675,000 for Montana to derail their football program, was that immediately after that game, a four-star defensive line recruit decommits from Washington and commits to the University of Oregon who also was a quarter away from losing to a Mountain West school in Fresno State. They ended up winning by seven, but they were tied or losing most of the way through that game, and the Mountain West gets to take a victory lap on this one. BYU gets to be an adopted Mountain West team for the purposes of this argument, and they put the Beat down on the Pac-12 this weekend. So I'm just going to go officially declaring that the Pac-12 is now the lesser conference compared to the Mountain West, a.k.a. the Mountain Best. Next up, we have United States soccer getting to be a meme of the weekend because U.S. soccer began their qualifying rounds for the FIFA World Cup which infamously 4 years ago the United States competed for a World Cup bid and got a in the final match after you know losing some games they probably shouldn't have in the final match got a draw at Trinidad and Tobago that kept them out of the World Cup and allowed Panama to make their first ever appearance in the World Cup so the United States accidentally misses the World Cup I say it accidentally like it's, you know, oopsies, we made a mistake, which technically they did, but they don't make it to the World Cup. They fire the coach. They retool the entire U.S. soccer program. They bring in the former coach of the Columbus crew and a bunch of his assistant coaches to lead Team USA. They change up her management. Some of the older players get phased out, like Clint Dempsey. And the U.S. team invests in the young players Like, obviously, Christian Pulisic being the face, but in yesterday's game against Canada, the guy who scored U.S.'s only goal was like 20 years old and scored totally unassisted. They've got players in Europe now. They've got a few MLS All-Stars. So there are some significant pieces for the U.S. team that are coming up through the age groups. And some of the players who were like 20, 21 during their last World Cup run are now 28, 29. And so, some of the names that I remember, uh, they end up now. One of them starts with a Y. There's also a really good defender who was like a child when they were at the World Cup last time. So, names that are recognizable are now in their primes. And Team USA started off the qualifying with two of the easiest games on their qualifying schedule, because the way that Konkakoff qualifies for the World Cup is that it's a tournament of eight. And you play each of the seven teams at home and seven teams on the road. And so the teams who, for whatever reason, I don't know why, immediately qualified to the tournament were Mexico, Panama, Honduras, the United States, and Costa Rica. And the teams that had to go through a separate qualifying round to get into this eight-team playoff to decide the three to four teams who qualify for the World Cup, were Jamaica, Canada, and El Salvador. And so, El Salvador was the United States' first matchup, and they traveled to El Salvador, and this is the biggest soccer match in that country across, I guess, really every four years, but you could argue every eight years, because they didn't even make it to qualifying the last time around for the World Cup. So, El Salvador opened the gates to their stadium for the biggest soccer game in five years in their country, which, by the way, doesn't even have the technology capabilities to do VAR. It's a really small stadium. They opened the gates to that arena eight and a half hours early, selling beer, selling everything, and potentially setting off fireworks. And it was madness because it's a massive moneymaker and it's the biggest soccer game in the country the united states came in and they got a draw against el salvador a country in el salvador that had to qualify for this tournament in a separate tournament and by the way a country that has the size the uh, has a population the size of the state of maryland Which is funny to think about when we consider the United States getting a draw against them. So then the United States comes back home. They're playing against Canada. And yes, Canada has a lot of people, but similarly to the United States, soccer is lower on the totem pole of sports in Canada. Canada was not one of the five elite North American teams that qualified. And if you could call it elite, because Honduras got to automatic qualifiers, but. Canada hasn't made the World Cup since 1986. And looking at the standings, it would be shocking if they made it again, even though they're expanding the World Cup in 2026 to make sure that Canada, the United States, China, and India get into the World Cup. So all of a sudden Canada, who, as I mentioned, hasn't been to the World Cup in four decades now, gets a one to one draw against the same United States team that had a draw against Honduras. So now the United States is tied for third in a tur- early in a tournament, like again, we're only one seventh of the way through. We won't know until March what happens, but they got two draws against the easiest matchups, one of which came at their home country in Nashville. And as they were leaving the pitch, they got booed off the field. They were booed, I say, booed off the field. And the Nashville people were not having it. As the United States gets two draws against Canada and El Salvador, who also got a draw against Honduras, which creates a four-way tie in the United States versus Canada slash Honduras slash El Salvador duel for the final two spots into the World Cup, which by the way, we're only two games out of 14 through, but you get to be a meme of the weekend for drawing against El Salvador and Canada, two of the worst teams in the qualifying tournament. This is after the U.S. just won the CONCACAF Gold Cup and after the United States won another international tournament in Central America with their second string players, which I guess is something you would kind of expect given that the United States and Mexico are far and away the best teams in CONCACAF, but based on the last four years, that's not necessarily the case for the United States. So the United States five and a half year plan to set everything up for the 2026 World Cup where they could maybe compete at home and make it to the quarterfinals or semifinals or something of that sort is underway, and it's not looking too great so far. So you just get to be a meme of the weekend for drawing against El Salvador and having it be nil-nil as well and having a draw against Canada and making me watch that game while Notre Dame was scoring a bunch of points against Florida State. Finally, our final meme of the weekend surrounds Major League Baseball, which means we get to play our favorite Baseball music. Grab all the shortstop. Kim will go to first to San So the Dodgers, the Dodgers came into a gigantic weekend against the San Francisco Giants. They were dead tied for the division lead. Just this last Wednesday, the Dodgers overtook the Giants in the National League West for the first time since the Dodgers were first place back on April 26th. That's how long it had been since the Dodgers had caught up to the Giants, who haven't made any sense all year because I assumed that the Dodgers would be better than the Giants because the Dodgers are the best team in baseball, and the Giants were a team that Two years ago, won 73 games and basically ran back with the exact same roster this year. But for some magical reason, the Giants just can't lose. So the Dodgers come into this weekend with a chance to, even if they don't sweep, take two out of three from the Giants and walk away with first place in the division as they go on to take on easy matchups like the Colorado Rockies and kind of the San Diego Padres. But the Padres won two out of three against the Houston Astros this weekend, so you can take that and shove it up yours, because we are back in the National League wildcard picture, and I thought I was going to get to see the Padres play at the San Francisco Giants in the wildcard game, but it turns out that that might not exactly be the case yet, because... The Giants won two out of three against the Dodgers this weekend, which doesn't make any sense, because nothing about the San Francisco Giants makes any sense. That team has come out of virtually nowhere, and they just can't be beat. Like, just nothing makes sense. This was the passing of the torch moment where the Dodgers finally got to win the division. Nope. The Giants win two out of three. They're back in first place. They're ho-humming along with... My favorite stat of the entire weekend which was other than 675,000 The San Francisco Giants starter Anthony DeSclafani this season had a 9.73 earned run average in 5 starts against the Dodgers which to be fair, he looked up the stats later. Really, it was just one start that was 10 runs in two and a third innings. So other than that, he's just been like really bad, like a five ERA. But it's that one start that's really messing with the numbers. Anthony Desclafani pitched six shutout innings against the Dodgers on Friday after having a 9.73 ERA against them this year. Because that's just what the San Francisco Giants do. They just make absolutely no sense, do stupid crap like this all the time, and Di going to pitch six shutout innings against the most overwhelming offense in baseball, and the Dodgers are going to fall Two out of three to the Giants, and the Giants are just magically going to keep riding out this wave and win the National League West. Because at this point, I just fully expect they'll win the National League West, because nothing about the San Francisco Giants says anything other than they're just going to do stupid stuff and make a run to the finals, or I'm sorry, the World Series, because that's basically where I stand with the Giants. It's just they're going to keep doing stupid stuff all the way until they make the World Series, and nothing about it is going to make anything any sense in the world because that team is made up of Brandon Crawford and Buster Posey and Brandon Belt and Evan Longoria and all these dudes who I would been watching for the last five years tank literally tank for the number two pick for the San Francisco Giants and now you add in Donovan Solano and a bunch of mediocre pitchers like Johnny Cueto, who's been terrible the last three years. All of a sudden, he's got a career revitalization. You've got Anthony DeSclafani, You've got Kevin Gosman, And you've got Alex Wood. And all of a sudden, those four mediocre-ass names are the best pitching staff in baseball. And it doesn't make any sense. And now they've traded for Chris Bryant. Chris Bryant's going to sign a long extension with the Giants. And it now brings a team that's better than the Padres, and it just makes me sad. It makes me confused. It's as if everything I know about baseball is just not existent The Giants are the exception that breaks every single rule that exists in the sport. And there's still hope that they might not win the division which would technically be good for the Dodgers, but at this point all I'm rooting for is can I go to a wild card game in San Francisco? That's basically my entire mindset of fandom in baseball at this point. And so the Dodgers get to be a meme of the weekend, and I always love the Dodgers getting to be a meme of the weekend, even if it comes at the expense of the Padres, but it doesn't matter, because the Padres won two out of three against the Astros, and they're back in first place. Or... 5th place. The f- the final wild card spot. They're ahead of the Reds. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping into the Take It Easy podcast and we'll be back again tomorrow, but as is tradition here on the Take It Easy podcast, when we have some conversation and good things happen to the San Francisco Giants, we got to play there. Wonderful theme song that I love almost as much as the Miami Dolphins theme song also from the 1970s. I think those two are one and two, or 1A, 1B on best 70s anthem songs for sports franchises. Dolphins get to be number one, Giants get to be number two, and a slight third place is probably the T-Pain remake of the Miami Dolphins fight song, which eventually we'll play at some point here on the podcast. But In the meantime, you can just Google T-Pain Miami Dolphins song remake. Uh, Take it easy, everybody. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.